so much of my identity and my self-worth and value were tied to like being a successful neuroscientist Mm. and it took a lot like not just career coaching but like life stuff too for me to like see that that's not true like I I am valuable and worthy and like great without a career and so a lot of it was like finding my own idea of self-worth and like coming to that realization that like I'm not my job like I'm a person and I don't have to be exceptional at everything that I do. Hello world and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today we'll be chatting with Dr. Kayla S. Singleton, the campaign manager at Solving for Science. She previously completed her PhD in neuroscience at Georgetown University and her BSc in neuroscience and classical history at Agnes Scott College. Most recently, she wrapped up a very successful postdoctoral fellowship at Emory University. Dr. Singleton is the president of Black and Neuro, a grassroots organization that fosters community and connection between Black neuroscientists around the world. And she recently started her new role at Solving for Science. So I'm elated to chat with Kayla about the ins and outs of her new position. But let's start from the very beginning. Kayla, what's your story? Awesome. Um, thank you so much for having me. I feel like really honored to be here. I think my story starts probably when I was in the seventh grade is where I normally start my story. It was the first time I ever cared about science. I did this like science outreach thing at my middle school where they brought all of these animal brains for us to look at and dissect. Mm. And I thought it was just really cool. And so fast forward a couple of years later when I was in high school, I realized that I needed to go to college because that was like my parents thing. They really didn't care about anything. They were like, you have to go to college. (laughs) Um, And the only thing I was interested in before that was like literature and like reading books and talking about them and like hanging out with my friends. Um, But I remembered that seventh grade science class and I was like, oh, I should do that. I should like study brains. That's got to be a thing that people do. Mm. And so all of my like teachers were like shocked. They were like, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) Like you've never enjoyed a science class in the four years you've been in high school ever, which was true. Mm. I didn't know that studying brains was even called neuroscience Mm. um, until I looked more into it. Uh, But once I decided to go to Agnes, I like earned the opportunity to do a lot of science outreach and like working in science labs. Mm. And all of my mentors in those sort of like undergraduate settings were like, you should go to graduate school Mm. um, and you can do this. You can like be a professor, you can teach. Mm. And I really enjoyed like teaching people how to do science, like the physical act of doing science. And it was something that I was like good at, like naturally good at. Mm. Um, And so like through the encouragement of my mentors, I decided that I would go to grad school. Mm. Um, And it was also one of those things that was like, everybody was asking me what I was going to do after graduation. And I did not have an answer for them. (laughs) I hadn't really thought that far. Mm. Um, And so it felt like the next logical step, Mm. but it wasn't like at the forefront of my mind, if that makes sense. Mm. Like when I was going through the journey, I was just like having fun. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I could do that. I love that. And so when people started talking about doing science at the professor level, is that where your mind often went when you thought about your future, at least in the latter stages of your graduate degree? So when I was at Georgetown, my my original career goal was to like get my degree, go back to Agnes, become a professor there, and sort of give back to the community that like poured into me oh, so deeply. Yeah. Um, and, and I think as I stayed at Georgetown, I just learned that there are different ways to do that very thing. 
Okay. And that's, I imagine, what led you to the position that you're in right now. Tell me everything. I want to know as much as possible about this role. Yeah. Um, I feel like I should start somewhere in like the mild existential crisis that got me. Oh, that's, that's always fun. Like a job. <laughs> yeah. To look at jobs outside of academia. Um, so after I graduated or defended, graduated um, from Georgetown, I was really like jaded. It was also the start of the pandemic, mm. but I had been planning my exit from graduate school for like two years. Mm. I was like, I have to get out of here. Um, and I had, I had earned funding that funded the last two years of my graduate degree and the next four years of my postdoc. And so for me, a postdoc was like the easiest job to get because I was, I already had the money for it. And so when I was looking for postdocs, I knew that I wanted to be close to home um, and my family is in Georgia, mainly also because I knew I couldn't make friends again as an adult. That wasn't a skill that I like had within me anymore. Um, and I was like, I'll go back home, mm. not like start over, but like start anew. Mm. Um, and so when I was looking for postdocs, I also was in this mindset of like, I'm going to give this like one last shot because the idea of like being a PI didn't really, it didn't have the same attractiveness mm. as it did before. Mm just because it felt like a lot of work. And it felt like a lot of work that I wasn't like necessarily super trained for or knew anything about. Mm. And when I talked to my postdoc PI about that, he was really upfront about like, yeah, we can like turn this into a mini PI boot camp for you and you can see how you like it. And like, so I did everything from like the budgeting to the project management. I taught classes at Agnes Scott. Mm. I was like a one woman show. Yeah. And it was great. But I was really, really tired. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. I think, I feel like it's safe to say that I, I kind of got like super burnt out very quickly. And so I think in the, be the middle, the beginning maybe of the second year of my postdoc, I, I had gotten like two faculty job offers and I had turned them down mm. um, at like small, smaller liberal arts colleges. Mm. Um, and I was kind of starting to come to this like realization that this like wasn't as fulfilling a career as I wanted it to be. Mm. And so one day I was like drinking coffee and like, dramatically weeping mm. about not knowing what I was going to do mm. with my life. Um, and I got this email from Emory's career development, postdoctoral career development office. Mm. Um, and it was the director of career advancement, I think is her official title. Um, and she was a career coach and she was like, I am looking for like postdocs to help me get this like final career coach certification. Mm. Um, and so I emailed her and we had a meeting where I basically was like, I'm not entirely sure what this is, but is this like a coachable problem that I'm having? Mm. And so I think through that career coach journey, um, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about different jobs mm. in just all of science. Um, and so all of that backstory to circle back to your original question. <laughs> um, one of my friends told me about the solving for job mm. and I was like oh I should apply for it and I had been in like career coaching for like a year and a half at that point and I knew that I was gonna leave academia I was like really content with that but I hadn't found a job that like sounded cool or something that like motivated me to apply for it but when I read the solving for ad it felt one like a friend wrote it someone mm. who has a similar like vernacular and jargon to me wrote it like someone who is enthusiastic yeah. about change someone who's enthusiastic about building community and like people who aren't afraid to make mistakes when they do those kinds of things. Mm. And so I went to Victor, my boss, and I was like, hey, I'm going to apply to this job, but 
it was the first job I'd ever applied to. And I was like, I'm not going to get it, but I think it would be really great practice. And like, I want to know more about this company because they seem really cool. And he was super supportive. And he was like, yeah, do it. If you get it, we'll like cross that bridge when you come to it. And then like two weeks later, I had to go back to him and be like, so remember when I said I probably wasn't going to get the first job that I applied to. I did in fact get the job. And now I have to leave. (laughs) Was he sad to to see you go? He was very sad. Mm -hmm. Um, me and a grad student left at like the like we had the same last day. Oh, um, and everybody thought that he was gonna like cry in the lab. It was the worst day for him, but he was so supportive and so wonderful. He still has been like super supportive and wonderful. He like emails me all the time and we like chat. Mm-hmm. And so it was really just through like the confidence of of solving for and like the compassion that they lead with that I was like, yeah, I'll do this. And it met all of the criteria for like a job that I wanted, which was that like I could stay in Georgia. Mm-hmm. I would make money, like more money mm-hmm. than I was currently making. Mm-hmm. And it had like stability to it, which I think one of the biggest things about deciding to leave my postdoc mm-hmm. was that I was really happy being a postdoc. I really loved doing science and I was good at it, but the job is temporary yeah. and I couldn't be a staff scientist because Victor's lab already has staff scientists because he's so wonderful. Um, And I was like, well, if I can't do it here, I don't like, there's not really another place that I can do that. What was the thing that was frightening you about even considering leaving academia? Uh, I think the biggest thing for me was just the fear of failure, like the fear of being really good at, at academic science, at like being a scientist in this way, at planning experiments and like When you know the outcomes of how things could go, that like gives you a sense of confidence, right? Mm -hmm. But with this new thing, it was like I could leave and like fail completely. I could just like fall on my face. No idea what I'm doing. And so there was a a sense of like true like terror that I, a person who had like always been like very successful, would make this decision and kind of undo all of that success. And Mm -hmm. like people would be disappointed in me. I think that was also a very big one mm-hmm. um, that people would like be disappointed in me or that I would like let down my friends or my family. And so I, I got to have like very upfront conversations with like people that seem silly now, but at the time I was very pressed about them. And I was like, are we still going to be friends if I don't do this job anymore? And they all were like, duh, Kayla, what are you talking about? But I think so much of my identity and my self-worth and value were tied to like being a successful neuroscientist. Mm. And it took a lot, like not just career coaching, but like life stuff too, for me to like see that that's not true. Like I, I'm valuable and worthy and like great without a career. And so a lot of it was like finding my own idea of self-worth and like coming to that realization that like I'm not my job like I'm a person and I don't have to be exceptional at everything that I do. How are you working on that for yourself as as you get a little older and disentanglement of your self-worth who you are as a person and the job that you do? Yeah I think it's like really hard. Yeah. Most of my best friends are like married with kids mm-hmm. um, and sometimes I try to talk to them about these things mm-hmm. and they don't they just like don't have the time the capacity right. to like be this existential mm-hmm. and so a lot of this I say that to emphasize that like a lot of this soul searching I did like on my own or in therapy mm-hmm. and so it feels like extra messy mm-hmm. I used to dream as a kid of being exceptional all of the time and not even dream of it like I considered myself and my family treated me as if 
I was excellent all of the time and that my excellence made me like better than other people. Mm. And it's so weird to like think that and then have that like reality sort of shattered Mm. because when I was at the very beginning of my postdoc, I felt like I was just constantly having to prove myself all of the time to no like to no one specifically except for myself. And I think I was just chasing the feeling of acceptance, Mm -hmm. of validation. Mm -hmm. It was like with every award I won or thing I did, Mm -hmm. it was just kind of like that's it. It was like very anticlimactic. And it made it like suck, honestly. It made the things worse. (laughs) And so I used to um Ubada Sabag is my like actual best friend Mm. and I used to like send him voice notes or text messages all the time and I'd be like I just want to be mediocre like I just want to be a normal girly like I want to be dumb like I can't (laughs) keep having these like work on myself conversations every three days Mm. like no one else is putting in this kind of work because they have other things to do (laughs) (laughs) and he was a great, but he is a great best friend. He was a great best friend during that time as well. And just kind of being like, you got to like get, you'll get through it bestie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's such a, a difficult place that like black women are in very often. Yeah. Like the idea that there is no, there's no rest. There's only excellence all of the time. And even I think at my worst, mm-hmm. I still am constantly working on myself. Like I, mm-hmm. I was talking to my friend's daughter yesterday, who's like 14 mm-hmm. and she's like going through an existential crisis. And I was saying to her things that I wish that, that I tell myself now, but I wish I had told myself earlier, which is like, you don't have to be working on yourself all of the time. Like you can just exist. You can just make mistakes and not consider your, it a moral failure or like moral bankruptcy for yourself. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure where that, like, level of scrutiny came from in my life, because I would say that my family is, like, pretty supportive. Mm -hmm. Um, But the number of things that I realized that I've personally taken on as, like, moral failures, if I do them versus, like, anybody else. Like, anybody else can do that, I'd be fine. Mm -hmm. But me, specifically. Yeah. The biggest advice I can give to people that are, like, going through that, I think, really is to, like, to journal it out, to write it out, Mm -hmm. to voice note it out. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think the second thing in addition to like putting it somewhere is to just start like doing things that you're maybe not good at. Like I just started doing things and I'm a big planner. Mm -hmm. So instead of like having a plan to like go to the farmer's market or like spend all day going to thrift stores or something like that, Mm -hmm. I would just go do it. I would just like get in the car and like experience a day that wasn't like super planned out where it was like, Oh, well I could have paid for parking beforehand, but I didn't like, I think to just have experiences and do the things that you enjoy is like really important in that way. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of making mental notes because (laughs) I'm hearing a lot of myself in you being like, I'm the planner. And you know, when I travel, I have these lists of things that I need to do the day prior, the week prior. And I mean, I don't know if I could get rid of those lists, but I I think there are certain things like a weekend or or just an afternoon, not having to think about which train I'm going to take and what time I'm going to leave. Like I can just leave when I want to and catch the train that's there and just see what happens and see what unfolds, you know? Yeah. And I think a big mantra for me, and I, I don't know if this, if you experienced this too, but a big mantra that I use in those moments is like, I have time. Mm. I don't know why much like that Paramore song that just came out. Mm. Um, 
I just always felt like I was running out of time. Like I had to like hit these milestones by a certain time, do all of these things by a certain time. And I humbly or not, like I far succeeded every goal I've ever had for myself. Mm -hmm. And so I like to remind myself when I'm like kind of frantically doing something that like I have time, there's, there's time in the day and I'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Might have to become a mantra of mine as well. You did mention that you identify as a black woman. I know you're also a Samoan woman and you're a queer person as well. Let's talk about identity. Yeah. Let's talk about how it informs your life and the work that you do and just how you walk through this world. Let's talk about that. Tell me your story from that perspective. I love talking about identity. I love learning the context of people's lives mm-hmm. and how like what drives them, like both intrinsically, like their identity mm-hmm. and how that influences the choices that they make externally. Um, so I grew up in like suburban, suburban is like the best way to describe Grayson, Georgia. <laughs> um, so my mom was Samoan and white, but she definitely just like looked white. Um, and my dad was black um, and they're both from like very small towns. Mm-hmm. And I think much to their credit, they instilled in me a lot of like Southern isms and phrasings mm-hmm. that are like horrible, like little girls are meant to be seen and not heard mm-hmm. for the sake of like politeness mm-hmm. or for like other people's, I don't know, like being quiet in public. Um, but they were always really adamant that like I could do whatever I wanted. I was really lucky in the time that I, where I went to high school was like a very open place mm-hmm. or like very accepting place. One of my friends was our sh- student body class president and he was like an out gay black man at like 16 well I guess he wasn't a man he was a boy um Mm. at 16 (laughs) and that was wild like I look back on it now and I'm like wow we were like pretty progressive for some kids like constantly hanging out at a target (laughs) (laughs) and then when I went to Agnes another like incredibly progressive place Mm. like I really got to experience and know what it was like to be a black woman Mm. right like I Grayson is like for predominantly white area and Agnes has no racial or ethnic majority mm-hmm. that attends ah. that like at the school okay. um, and so it's like incredibly diverse but I, I learned a lot about like the way that people perceive me mm. and I thought it was hard then but it actually became far worse when I when I went to Georgetown oh. um, and I think that was probably my first bout of like extreme racism or oh. like prejudice mm. and like feeling as if my identity was like a bad thing Mm -hmm. or just not celebrated Mm -hmm. because that was something that Agnes really, I think, instilled in all of its students, this idea that like who you are is so valuable and you bring so much to the table, regardless of how how you look or like who you love and all these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was a great learning moment, a great learning curve Mm -hmm. for me, both like I think at Georgetown, the university, but also like in DC, the city. Yeah, I think there's something to like, seeing the violence of poverty Mm. and seeing gentrification and accidentally taking a part in gentrification of certain areas Mm -hmm. and not knowing the history and culture of a place and so so much of my identity I think I've tried to use it as like a growing tool like a way to accept myself Mm. but also to remember that like there are always people who have it like worse off than me Mm. and what am I doing to contribute to their struggles or their growth Mm. and what are like my ideals and how does that work right because my I come from like generational wealth and even my time as a postdoc probably would have been far worse Mm. if I had like moved to a different city or my dad like didn't give me the house that I live in like Mm -hmm. my financial situation would have been way different and one of the things that I constantly kind of think about that I was thinking about in a lot of like 
the organizing work that I did in the start of my postdoc was like, if I'm struggling and I have all of these things going for me, what is happening to people who don't have these things going for them? Mm -hmm. The way that I think about my identity is really as a blessing, right? Like I, I feel really happy to like have grown into the woman that I am and the person that I am. And I also feel really lucky to have found like people who constantly are like encouraging me and supporting me mm-hmm. and also kicking my butt and <laughs> encouraging me to like think about things outside of myself. Mm. What values do you think you're going to bring into your presidency of Black and Neuro? Congratulations, by the way. Yeah. We've talked so much about ideals and what you thought of yourself and how you're starting to guess learn about who you are as a person more and more so yeah what are the things that you think that you're going to bring into the role yeah to me for black and neuro it feels like such a sacred beautiful place mm-hmm. like everything the light touches Mufasa mm-hmm. talks about <laughs> <laughs> to me I, the biggest thing I want to be able to give like the organizing team and like the community members of Black and Neuro is like a sense of ownership mm-hmm. of the community, like a sense of say in what we do and how we do it. And I also, I want to make sure that people get the credit that they deserve. Angeline Dukes, who's our founding president, but also former president now, she has done so much for Black and Neuro that like on a surface level, like you can see it on social media, But the way that she like lights up rooms, like when we're talking about like boring stuff like policy or budgets, like (laughs) the way that she like pours into people is so, it's like invaluable. It's Mm -hmm. like priceless, like Mm -hmm. those old Visa commercials. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I want people to like get that recognition. Mm -hmm. I want us to have that sense of ownership and agency over what we do. And I also want us to continue to grow. I feel like so many of the people on the board now as they like transition to post-grad student roles and like postdoc life, we all represent very different sectors now of like the scientific community, whether that be like medical writing or nonprofit work um, or industry work. And I just want to make sure that we're like, that we have that level of representation in like the programming that we have as well. I, I hope my role as president will really just be like shining a light on how great like we as an organizing team are and have been. That's beautiful. I can't wait to see what happens over the next few years and what you're able to accomplish. I'm sure it'll be all wonderful and amazing things. Okay, so I usually end the conversation with words of wisdom to the next generation. Sometimes I do like words to your younger self. When you were five years old, what would you tell that little version of yourself? But I actually want to change it a little bit for the purposes of our conversation. What would you tell the version of you that was in the midst of your existential crisis about who you are now? Yeah. Wow, that's such a great question. And I'm not like normally a question raider. Um, (laughs) I think I would tell her to just keep going. Mm. It's not just persevering. It's like learning about yourself. And that is like one of the greatest gifts that you can give another person is the space in the room to be who they truly are and to learn who they are. And I think there's something to having lived a very like academically or scholarly successful life. Mm There are just things that you don't know about yourself and you can't live your life to the fullest if you don't know who you are. Mm -hmm. And so I think I would like encourage myself, but also to know that like the ultimate prize is you, like you are the ultimate thing to be had and to like know about. Also have some faith in yourself. I am really bad about having like faith in my own ideas or like 
I've got to um, work on that. <laughs> yeah. I've been, it feels, I, I say that, but I think it's just like in the moment of strife, I'm not very good at it. Like reflectively, I'm like, oh yeah, I knew all along. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll take this moment to say thank you, Kayla. It's been amazing chatting with you. It's been a beautiful conversation and insightful conversation. And honestly, I'm just going to be watching your success as you continue to do all the things that make you happy. And yeah, believe in yourself. You're amazing. We all think you're amazing. Hopefully you'll start to learn that and, you know, assimilate it into your idea and your your vision of yourself as well as time goes on. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was so nice. <laughs>